Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. friends what is up welcome to the show this is having a blast the show all about punk rock and personal development on today's episode i'm extremely excited to be speaking with mr alex howard i first became aware of alex when discovering his band conditions he was the guitar player and backup singer for conditions and i first heard of them back in 2007 i was a big fan they were a band generating a lot of hype back then and they put out a couple of really great full-length records as well as EPs. I've followed Alex since Conditions became inactive in 2014 as he joined the band Sleeping With Sirens, whom I was also a fan of and still am a fan of, as a touring member. We chat all about that as well, the history of Conditions, what led him to ultimately being a touring musician with so many other artists. He went on to play from Sleeping With Sirens. He went on to play with the rapper Hoodie Allen, and now he's playing with a musical act at Jelly Roll. We talk about a lot of cool stuff, creativity, being open to opportunity, and we even get a really cool story about him meeting the legendary Mike Durnt, basis of Green Day, as well as Mark Hoppus from Blink-182. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with Alex. He's always come across as a super likable, humble, approachable guy, and that was clearly evident during our talk. So without any further delay, please enjoy this fun chat with Mr. Alex Howard. Dude, can you hear me? Good. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, but it's not coming through my headphones. Give me one second. Sorry, I don't sure. use Zoom very often, surprisingly. No worries, man. You're good. Take your time. All right. Uh, say something again. Hello. Check. All right. There we go. Cool. Cool. This mic, for whatever reason, has been giving me a hard time. The last person I interviewed, <laughs> it did this thing where it made my voice almost an octave lower, like really <laughs> low. That's and amazing. He, and he didn't notice. <laughs> probably even better like that yeah no it's funny because i, I re-listened to it back and it was the first time out of almost 100 interviews that i've done that it did that and it had done it a little bit on my other podcast because like, i do another podcast with my partner mm -hmm. and it glitches like the cord will come unplugged just a little bit and it does that but luckily i had a fail safe i had another mic that was recording using that audio oh good <laughs> yeah dude Hello, it's nice to meet you. Via Absolutely, Zoom. you as well, yeah. There's several reasons why I wanted to interview you, but just to give you a rundown of why I do this podcast, I used to be in a band many moons ago, and I'm still technically in a band, but we're just doing it for fun these days. But yeah. I started doing the podcast as a means to stay connected to music, talk to old friends and things. But I'm also really interested in things like personal development and upward mobility and skill acquisition. I'm a huge 
fan of people like Tim Ferriss and Tom Bilyeu, other people that have podcasts where they interview people and talk about self-development, nuggets of wisdom strewn about. And sure. Just ways to improve your life and things like that. So what I found is in interviewing my friends, there's lots of parallels with music and self-development. And it seems like a lot of musicians, they tend to be very self-motivated, self-drivers, self-starters. And I think that's the thing I'm interested in talking about. And I think that's what people are interested in hearing. So I've been following you for a while. I've been following your band for a while too. I was a big Conditions fan. Awesome. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And we have a loose connection in that you recorded your second full length, Full of War, with Brandon Paddock, who is a friend of mine. He's from Kansas City. And that's where I'm oh, from. Okay. I didn't know you get, y'all knew each other. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely want to ask about that. Mm-hmm. One of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you was the last few years I've followed your trajectory, your career. And I think it's cool that you've been a touring musician with a lot of different acts. It seems like you've done a lot of really cool things over the last few years. I really. Awesome. I wanted to start with your background a bit. You grew up in Virginia. You're from Virginia. I know that's yep. where Conditions was based. So yeah, cool. most of my most of my life in Richmond, Virginia. Okay, cool, excellent. What was the scene like there when you were growing up, when you were a teenager? Because I would imagine you probably played guitar starting out as yeah. a teenager, and then maybe played in local bands and things like that. For sure. You know, I feel like a lot of people probably always have like a little bit of the glory days mentality to like when they were coming up, you know, at any different era. But I really think that we had something pretty special back then. You know, it was early 2000s. I graduated high school in 2005. So the early 2000s, getting into high school, I was just Blink-182 was the biggest band on the planet in 2000, 2001. When they started to come up, a lot of the other bands and like that sort of realm came up as well. Green Day had a resurgence. Blink brought Jimmy Eat World kind of along with them. And, you know, bands like Newfound Glory and all sorts of stuff that, you know, they would you would see on these touring packages. So I was really, really influenced by that growing up. So I think like my first kind of like, quote unquote, high school band was, you know, a pop punk band. We were really bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was like we had a blast doing it and we got to play around like local, not even really clubs. We did a couple club little shows, but like when I was 14, 15, I'm playing in like a neighborhood bar and grill that we have to like be done by a certain point because we're not of age, you know? So, oh, yeah. so by doing that, we got a little mini following, if you will, and got to start opening like local shows for like actual bands coming through. One of my claims to fame is like, I was in ninth grade and my little pop punk band opened for the starting line in yellow card at Alley Cats in Richmond for, and the starting line actually didn't show up. They got sick. So it was just yellow oh. card that showed up. And there was probably like 70 people there. And, uh, you know, this is before Ocean Avenue and, you know, where they took off and all that. Um, Was this 2002? Uh, It must have been 01 or 02. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Kind of fast forward. I I got a little older and started a different band that got into like a little bit more of the heavy stuff that I really started to gravitate towards from like the Warped Tour scene of that era, like the Thrice Thursday, the Screamo, if you will. Um, Sure. And I played in a band called Motion Picture Demise. And we signed with a small label out of California. And we, you know, started to do a little bit more of like the regional things where we got to open for Under Oath and more of like those sort of bands that were coming through at that time. And did like small regional tours, nothing like ever, not super noteworthy, but, you know, enough to really be grinding your teeth and getting like a gauge of how it all works a little bit. Sure. At least I'm like... 
Yeah, exactly. And like the local regional level. And then I finished high school and the other dudes in that band were a couple years older than me. And I could somehow convince my parents to let me take a quote unquote year off after I graduated. And we went off and did a bunch of stuff, did like South by Southwest. And, you know, we're trying to kind of make it as an up and coming indie band. And at some point during that year, I just decided that my heart wasn't in it. And I actually left that band while in California, but like wow. on the, ter- on the terms of, Hey, I, you know, I don't hate anybody's guts. My heart's not here. I'm going to finish out this spring, summer, whatever is going on. And then I'm going to enroll in college in the fall. So did all that fast forward, start going to classes at VCU in Richmond and Jason Marshall, the other guitarist of conditions, him and Brandon, Brandon Roundtree, they played in another band that came up at the same time as mine in the local scene. And they were always, they always did a little bit more than I was doing, you know, so I kind of looked up to them in a way, even though we were basically, you know, the same age and peers. And at that point, Jason approaches me. He's like, Hey man, we're starting a new band and I want you to be in it. And I was like, dude, I just left this band. Uh, you know, I had this terrible mini record contract that I had to get out of on top of it. I'm going to school now. I think this is what I should do. I appreciate it. And he was like, no, you should do it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. So it didn't, <laughs> uh, you didn't have to twist my arm too much. And that's when we first started condition. So this would have been uh, 2006. 2006. Um, okay. I've got a couple yeah. questions for you. Yeah. You said your heart wasn't in it. Can you be more specific? Was it the fact that you guys were heavier? Were you just not into it? Or did you see an end cap and a timetable as far as how much success you could have in that band? Or was it something to do with the members or? Yeah, actually, I think really what it, looking back on it now, I think part of it had to do with, we had actually undergone like a pretty big change, same members at the time, but sound wise, I've like, everyone just kind of decided that they wanted to go in like the realm of like a more almost classic rock sort of vibe where we literally used to sound like Thursday or something. And then the next EP we put out over some like growing pains of figuring out your sound sounded more of like what was popular than like audio slave or like, um, you know, like more, much more like radio rock. And I was going along with it. I had fun doing it and, you know, it was some good music in there, but I just, uh, I think at the end of the day, deep down, I knew it wasn't like who I was. Sure. So that's why I kind of played it out. I was like, you know, you guys have my blessings to do whatever, but, you know, and I'll continue for a while, but I'm not in it for the long haul. Yeah, that makes sense. When I think of bands like that, Audio Slave, Nickelback, Five Finger Death Punch, they're a newer band, I guess you would say, but they've been around yeah. forever. But around that time period, my friends and I, we used to always call them the butt rock bands. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> Even if there was a good song in there occasionally, we always gave them the name of the butt rock genre or whatever. So Same. like you said, <laughs> you grew up on pop punk, which pop punk meandered into the screamo territory, emo territory. You know, mm. you had bands that were blurring those lines, like taking Sunday and fallout boy and under oath and all that. Exactly. So it makes sense that your heart wasn't in it. Right. So, and then the second question I was going to ask is the band that they were previously in you said Jason and Brandon was the mm-hmm. singer, correct? They were in Scarlet. So Brandon was in Scarlet for a while, but their band that uh, Jason and Brandon were in together was called Fiat or like Forever in a Day. They just kept, right. kind of went by Fiat for short. But yeah. So long story short, they did that band all through high school together. Brandon kind of got, I don't want to say poached, but kind of picked out from Scarlet because the the drummer Scarlet actually produced a lot of the Fiat recordings. Okay. So he knew he knew who he was. They needed a new singer who could sing and scream. 
So he got Brandon and Brandon's first attempt or take at being in a real touring band. You know, they were on ferret music and they were doing like pretty decent sized tours, especially at, you know, 19 years old or whatever. Whereas before he was just kind of doing slumming in on the self book tours, trying to figure out how to get to that level. So. Of course. Yeah. I remember seeing that name in AP and that sort of thing. And we were friends with this band around 2006, 2007 called Josephine. They eventually changed Mm -hmm. their name to Josephine Collective and they had a song called Scarlet. And I really liked (laughs) that song. That band name just popped out at me because I do remember seeing that band name and checking them out around that time. And then you guys put out two EPs from 2006 to about 2000. 10 is that right or 2009 Uh, basically 07 to 09 we put out two eps and we were shopping ourselves around the labels and honestly this is where the beginning of the end was for conditions in the in like now now looking back you know at the time everything is exciting and you know we had a lot more in front of us regardless but at this point i feel like we passed up on a lot of opportunities due to i think a little bit misguidance We had a lot of people telling us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And it was kind of a weird time. And at that point too, like 2007, eight, a lot of bands that sounded like us were getting picked up all over the place. Sure. Um, And so I think we, we were trying to hear out the people that were like, no, don't sign to this indie label. You should be waiting for like the real, like the big labels to come. You know, some of those conversations just didn't go as you would hope, you know? So at the end of the day, we ended up just going with good fight music, which was previously ferret because of that relationship Brandon had with the owner, Carl, after going through all these talking to the big guys and, and, and not feeling like we were, you know, met anything and then going back to good fight. It was like, they really cared about us. Yeah. That makes sense. It reminds me of, you mentioned the early two thousands earlier, like the early, early two thousands. It was almost the same thing where I remember hearing I was in a band from 2000 to 2004, and then I didn't do Mm -hmm. music for a little while. And then I was in a band from 2007 to 2011, roughly. Mm -hmm. And I was a teenager and privy to all these bands getting signed in the very, very early two thousands. And it was all about tooth and nail and drive through and, and Mm -hmm. ultimately feel by ramen but you had some bands that were holding out for major label right offers and things like that i remember the band the format they were a band that i was always hearing that the big indies really wanted them but they were holding out for that major label you know and it never really happened for them honestly and then for fun to blow up like they did was sort of an anomaly weird thing that happened but right i always think back to the format because they were on tour with bands like yellow card and they were approached by labels like Fueled by Ramen, which eventually completely blew them up, but sure. yeah, they were holding out for that major label contract. And then around that 2007 mark, you had neon pop punk exploding, but you also had a bit of a resurgence of bands like Conditions and bands you guys probably played with a lot around that time, like Ivory Line and Inseosin and Amberlin, bands like that. I was in a band called The American Life Afterwards, and we were in that territory as well. But I remember there were so many bands that were getting signed around that time. And if you don't mind... What were some of the labels that you passed on? Were there any that come to mind? There was one. I remember this one van ride. We were on some small tour at the time and I would get a, an email from Victory Records. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how, like, how they worded it or whatever, but they said something along the lines of like, have you ever considered working with Victory Records? And I like said it, you know, I kind of read it aloud to the rest of the band and they were like, tell them no. Like tell them to fuck off. And so I was like, no, no, we have not considered working with Victory Records. Thanks anyway. And I think, (laughs) I think that was the right move in the long run, regardless. (laughs) I think Um, you're right. We we heard a lot of those horror stories, the Victory Records. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. That's probably a bullet dodged. I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. 
But yeah. uh, I mean, at the time, I, I remember bugging Johnny Minardi at Fuel by Ramen quite a bit. And he really liked us and kind of like wanted to sign us, but I don't think he got the okay from whoever was above him, which is pretty funny because he's like told me that after the fact. And that's a guy that in the industry has done leaps and bounds. You know, he's, oh, he's, yeah, he's a big, big player out there. But, um, yeah, he's seen it all. He's great. Yeah. So, um, that was another one that didn't work out, but there was one that we, we got pretty far in conversations with Razor and Ty. Uh-huh. Um, and the management we had at the time, like we literally never got an explanation as to like, we got to the point where we're having a conference call with like the head of the label and like their lawyers and talking numbers for records on the contract and this and that. And then like, next thing we knew, it was just like, wasn't around. We were like, what happened? Or like, ah, it wasn't yeah. right. So that management company obviously didn't work out. <laughs> there was an, another time that we were apparently like kind of in consideration at Warner, which was like the big one that we really wanted. Cause you know, early on we got taken out on tour with Paramore due to some like friend connections and they were kind of going to bat for us for a while. And that, you know, that's Fuel by Ramen goes to Warner and all that. So we were like, sure. man, if we can go to Warner, like that's the big dogs. And it was just another management thing where it didn't fully like get all the way through. And it wasn't, it felt like another thing that was drug on forever and never, yeah. uh, never came to fruition. Okay. Yeah. It's always fun to think about what could have happened, but I think timing yeah. plays a huge role in that. I could have heard conditions on a major label. I think that would have made sense for the time and the music you guys were putting out. I think it had that palatability and there was a lot of hype around conditions around that time. I remember seeing that name and you guys were in the magazines and stuff and on websites, I saw your name quite a bit. And I think that's how I was exposed to those initial first two EPs. It was probably a good idea for you guys to mm-hmm. record Paul Levitt as well. Cause he did the first two EPs and then your first full length. He did. Yeah. So okay. we, we first went to him. I can't remember. Jason had heard something he did. That was another like regional band that we came up playing with. And then um, we were in Richmond. He was in Baltimore. So it wasn't like, it wasn't super far. It was only three hours up the road for us to get up there. So after the first EP that we did with him, we you know, realized it sounded great. We worked well together and we just kept going back to him for everything. So that, uh, you know, after the first record, which we loved. And then after that, we decided maybe a good idea to just creatively try something different. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like the the tones you guys were able to achieve on Fluorescent Youth. I listened to it again today and it sounds great. And Full of War sounds great too. I'm a fan of Brandon's work and I've been following him for the last 12 years or so, seeing his trajectory of producing and recording and stuff. How did that come about? How did you guys get connected with Brandon? Because he worked with um, Feldman before that. I'm pretty sure he was engineering for Feldman for a little bit before you guys went in to record with just him. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. So odd, like oddly enough, we had actually, before we even met him, we had also done like a little bit of like a, I don't want to say tryout, but like kind of a showcase with John Feldman. And it probably would have been while Paddock was uh, recording for him, but yeah, that's just a small world, like kind of crazy aspect of that. But I remember during fluorescent youth, we had toured on the AP tour, which was like black veil brides and drugs were the headliners. And oh, um, I bet that was a, yeah, that was, <laughs> It was, it was a rousious tour. It was an interesting one for sure. But I mean, that was like our first, first real like big tour while, while having like an actual full length in our hands. That was like the first big one that got us out there. So that was a really good tour. But one of the, I think it was drugs sound guy, our friend Ryan knew Brandon Paddock. Oh, okay. So he was like, yeah, my, I know this guy and he's super smart producer, creative guy. He like 
would love to work with y'all. And I think that's how it initially, like the conversation happened. But then also there was a, another producer in the, like the Maryland region that was uh, named Taylor Larson. We had kind of worked out a deal that Brandon Paddock would come and work out of Taylor Larson's studio. And Brandon would be the song guy, more of the creative songwriting guy. And then Taylor would be the one who would kind of get the sounds and work on mixing it and all that. Okay. So it was, it was really like Brandon produced it and Taylor mixed it. Cool. And, and that, and it kind of worked out because our friend's band called life on repeat, they were on equal vision. We came up, they were like our best friend band essentially. And they had worked out the same deal. So basically Brandon came to Maryland for two months. You got a month with conditions and a month with life on repeat. Cool. Um, to work out of that studio. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I talked to Brandon, it was probably maybe a month or two ago. It was very quick on social media, but he was working with Martin from Boys Like Girls. And I know they yeah. had been doing the night game stuff for months. They'd done two records by that point, but he mentioned that they were working together on a new special secret project. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he, I know he's um, been he's, working with him. I- yeah, I was going to say, I've seen him around in town here in Nashville a couple of times. And he yeah, it seems like him and Martin just are songwriting fools where they just, you know, get in the studio and they crank out for all sorts of different people doing a lot of co-writes and stuff like that in town. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You're in Nashville. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed this behind you. You mentioned Blink earlier. Is that Mark? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got it. Um, I had a friend that used to work at Fuse. Uh-huh. And it was when he had the show Hop Us on Music. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So um, they had gotten me a the big poster and he signed it and everything. So I've got it framed up in my little music room. Yeah. Red. Very cool. Have you ever yeah. met him? I did once. Uh, I went to go meet, meet up with the All Time Low guys. I had met them and, you know, they actually, oddly enough, had some run-ins with conditions over the years, but I toured with them and got to know him much better when I was with Sleeping With Sirens. Mm-hmm. And um, so they came before I moved to Nashville, I went and saw them in Virginia beach. They were opening for blank and I was just standing okay. in their green, sitting in their green room, chatting with them. And Mark just rolls in. He's like, Hey, I'm Mark. And I just, that was one moment in my life where like, I've met a lot of people, but I had to hold it in pretty good on that one. I was like, hi, it's really nice to meet you. <laughs> yeah. That is completely fair. My friend, I would be pretty starstruck. I think if I were meeting him for the first time too, he's the only yeah. member of blank that I haven't met. Oh, wow. So you met Tom and Travis? Yeah, yeah. I've met him various times over the years. But yeah, that's cool. You're a rad guy. I'm glad he's cancer-free now. Absolutely. You have a connection with All Time Low, too, because they worked with Paul Levitt early in their career as well, right? Yeah, I was going to say, come, like thinking back, I think that was one of the reasons that we wanted to go with them because they were you know, up and coming and they would come down and play in Richmond quite a bit, being from Baltimore. So they were like you know, a popular name coming up at that time. So that was probably another reason why we chose to go with Paul. Okay, cool. Did you ever meet the Everett dudes? They're from Virginia, aren't they? Uh, no, band? I really liked that band coming up and I knew yeah. Paul worked with them too. That was another one who they kind of upstream to a major label and it never like fully took off, but they had, I still remember that one song. Was it Siren on the 101? Siren on the 101. Yeah. yeah. Such yeah. a good song. Yeah, it really is, man. I listened to that record from time to time. We were good buds with them. They came and stayed nice. in my house when I was a teenager and we played a bunch of shows with them. Yeah, Shit. I actually had, I had Peter on the show on the podcast a few months ago. So it was good to chat with them and reconnect and stuff. But yeah, I knew they were from that area, but then they commuted out to California. Right. Yeah. As most bands do, or at least around (laughs) that time. Were there any specific tour moments or live shows that stand out to you with conditions? You mentioned that tour, the drugs tour. Were there any specific shows that were memorable 
that you reflect back on when you talk to the conditions dudes? I think the tour as a whole was really good to us. I can't really pinpoint one particular show on that one. I think San Diego might be the first one front of mind, but there was definitely some other ones, you know, like those right before that, like in 2008, when Paramore took us out, we got to go tour in the UK and we got to play two nights sold out at Brixton Academy, which is a 5,000 cap room. We were like pretty green at that point. So to be able to do that was amazing. A lot of the stuff we did with them, you know, early on was just like such a big jump from what we were used to. You know, I remember playing like the uh, hard rock in Orlando for like 3000 people with them. That was just a special time because Riot was just blowing up. So it was really cool to be a very minor, minor part of that. And then, you know, moving forward, um, you know, a lot of our hometown shows were always just next level. You know, any anytime we played Richmond, it was we felt like a big band because we we were always treated so well by our hometown. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys toured a little bit for Full of War. What eventually transpired after that? What made you guys decide to go separate ways? Yeah. So during that process, uh, Jason, the other guitarist had left the band. So we became a four piece. So I kind of took on all the guitar duties and, you know, doing that record with a guy like Brandon Paddock was really great because he, I think he really challenged me and brought the best out of me and kind of taught me some things along the way in the guitar realm. And We just kept grinding it out and it just felt like as the tours went on, we got less and less excited, you know, because there's normally there's a lot of breaks in between and being a young band where you have to come home and work some job that you don't like just to make ends meet. Normally, when I would be coming home from a tour, I would just be invigorated. I didn't give a shit. Like I would go wait on the worst tables on the planet and not care (laughs) because I was just so still riding the high from the touring we had just done. And as it kind of progressed, it just felt like we were still trying harder. And, but there was like a glass ceiling that we could never get past like two of four on a touring package or we'd never get like the right things. And I remember coming home, the last one we did before we decided as a group, we were supporting Yumi at six, who we had met in the UK through some of the Paramore stuff. And they took us out on that US tour and great dudes, love them to death. It was a pretty solid tour, but it was another one we were like second of four. And a week or so after we got home, we called like a band meeting and we were just like, and I'm normally like the cheerleader of the bunch for back then. And I was just like, how do y'all feel? Like, I'm not pumped. I'm not riding that high. That's normally there. Like I'm, I'm just more so like, where do we go from here? We eventually just were like, you know what, before we start to hate this or hate each other or anything like that, let's just go out, say our goodbye, you know, and call it a day. So that's what we ended up doing. And we did one last little run in the winter of 2013. And then we did like a last few shows in 2014 and just went out on a high note, just as brothers and, you know, good friends and all that. So rather than driving into the ground and eventually resent each other. (laughs) Sure. I think it's cool that you guys released the 10th anniversary of Fluorescent Youth. Mm -hmm. And it's a record that still holds up really well. Those songs are really great. I was listening to those a lot last year. So it seems like you guys still can celebrate what you guys accomplished together and what you guys did and celebrate the past a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We did a, we did a five year show of fluorescent youth back in 2016. And then we had gone back to see Paul Levitt and spent a weekend with him. And we, you know, wrote and recorded a new song, which ended up being on that, 10 year uh, anniversary release, give it all. So yeah, it was really fun. Like to be able to, especially we did that song and I think we released it in 2018. It was fun to get the five of us back in a room together and just, you know, we reverted back to our 21 year old selves where (laughs) 
we just, you know, joke around and, and know exactly what we're doing musically. And it was, it was fun to still see that it was kind of still there. Like we knew how to play off each other pretty well and, and get, you know, write a song that we thought was great and have a good time doing it. Okay. That's great, man. Yeah. I can imagine that was fun. And it was probably just yeah. fun to just be creative with those guys again. Exactly. And surely after conditions, is that when your touring position started with sleeping with sirens or what happened after that? I mean, I would imagine there was probably some introspection. You probably went back home, thought a little bit about what you wanted to do, what your options were. But how did you find yourself in Sleeping With Sirens as a touring member? Yeah, it was actually pretty funny the way that it panned out for me is that I'd gone back to pretty different lifestyle. I was finishing up college and um, I was working an internship, basically the power company of the state of Virginia. So like working in this big office building in downtown Richmond, and it was the company that my dad worked for for 30 years, you know, so I had a pretty good in there and it was, seemed like the nice, easy choice to have a cushy life in the same week. Yeah, exactly. The same week that I actually got a job offer from them was the same week that Kellen from Sleeping With Sirens calls me. He's like, hey, so like, what are you doing now that conditions is done? And I just kind of talk. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get a job, blah, blah, blah. Because conditions, we had done a handful of tours opening up for Sirens. So they become really good friends of ours. And he was like, well, you should come play for us now. He's like, you know, like no one really sings in the band and I'm doing all this on my own. You sang a lot in conditions like with harmonies and everything. You should come do that for us and you can play guitar and sing backup. So Rad. at the time, yeah, at the time <laughs> I'm like 26 and not married. I don't have any kids. Like I don't really have any, like anybody to, you know, any real responsibility that's going to hold me down. Sure. And I remember meeting my dad for lunch that week, talking to him about it. And he was like, honestly, I want you to take the job, obviously, but I can't blame you for not. He's like, you know, I was like, yeah, because on top of it, they already had this whole world tour planned out with Pierce the Veil. Um, wow. So I was like, you know, there's a lot that I haven't gotten to do at this point. I was satisfied with walking away and, and moving on with life after conditions. But when that was presented to me, I was like, man, I've never gotten to tour on a bus steadily like that. Like, I've never been to anywhere outside any of the other countries in Europe, aside from UK. There's so much other other stuff that I want to be able to check off as, as yeah. you know, a touring musician. So I went in and things were really well there for a while. I remember my first day, like they just gave me the set list to learn, like didn't teach me anything. And uh, I remember my first practice here in Nashville, Jack, the lead guitarist turns around. He's like, dude, honestly, I thought, well, I was going to have to teach you a bunch of stuff or like even worse, we'd have to send you home or some shit. He's like, good job. <laughs> so, I'm sure that was validating, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that went really well for, you know, I was with them from 2014 to 2017 right. and, um, you know, got the whole to do time it. was Nick in the band the whole time. Yeah. So he had just, he basically essentially officially joined right when I was getting to be a part of it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I met him back in the undermined days back in the warp tour days. Nice. Yeah. I yeah, love undermined. Like, yeah, same. Yeah, I really liked them back then. Well, it was I mean, like even do. more of a connection because Nick was in the band Drugs. So we had toured oh, together and yeah. we'd become buddies. So it was almost a, like kind of a small world situation where I toured with Sirens without him in the band and I toured with him separately in a different band. And then we eventually started playing in the same band for years. That's crazy. Yeah. 
works that way, but I like that camaraderie. I like how there's satellite connections, you know, in the music industry for sure. Well, cool. Okay. So this is one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you. I think it's cool your story and I was a big fan of conditions, but I think it's really cool what you've done since then. I have a question. Was it always known that you were going to be a touring member or was there ever any talk of you being an official member of the band who helps write records and things like Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. So for Sirens, at first, I think it was definitely a no. I was just kind of the hired gun there to do my do my thing. And as time went on and, you know, especially fans and stuff like that began to see me everywhere with them. I think that was kind of a little bit of the conversation. And I think ultimately what it boiled down to is I was a part of some of the recording sessions for the album gossip that they did for Warner brothers, but it was a whole, that whole experience was really strange where the producer that they worked with, we kind of all, me, Jack, and Nick were throwing songs at a wall. Nothing was really sticking. And he wanted to take the approach of really sitting down and writing a song bare bones, having words and a melody and all that. Whereas how I came up was I would write a song and Brandon would just sing over it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I totally understand that's more of like the structured way, especially like the country or pop way is to write a chorus all together and then like build a song around it. So we were kind of going in different directions there. And that album ended up being really not a good representation of the band. There was a lot of other co-writers and stuff involved working with Kellen. So I think that's why that album for them is a little bit, it's definitely a different one. It was not their, you know, no offense to them now. That's not their most popular. I think everyone everyone has different views of it. And, you know, I'm sure I could talk about it for days, but yeah, it, it was really weird process because I was like in the studio the whole time, but I never really doing anything. So that was strange. And that was my first taste of a major label album. Unfortunately, I uh, only got to kind of chime in a few times here and there and it never really fully like worked out. And then when that album came out is when things started to kind of turn a little bit for him and they had to rethink the way that they did things business wise. And sure. um And then I had to, you know, unfortunately part ways with them. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me just because I've seen it happen a few times with bands that I really like who can Mm -hmm. swallow it up by that machine. And sometimes with major labels, I think what you're describing is you have too many cooks in the kitchen and you are being pulled in a million different ways and you're not quite Mm -hmm. sure. I've already mentioned them once in this episode. I wasn't planning to, but a band like Amberlin, it worked out for them, right? They re-recorded this song that they wrote early on in their career with Feel Good Drag. Yeah. You listen to Steven talk about his anxiety and the pressure he was feeling when they signed to a major label. And then they went in to record with a different producer that they only worked with once. And it's one of my favorite producers, Neil Avron. So it's not to say that, yeah, it's not to say that Neil Avron's a bad producer or anything, but I would imagine they were thrown into a bit of a machine and it was different than their time on Tooth and Nail and Aaron Sprinkle, somebody that they had worked with several times before that. They were very comfortable with him. They could write as many songs as they wanted and organically create them. But you always hear about bands who go in to write a major label record and there's all these expectations and all this pressure. And they're putting a lot of pressure on themselves because they're thinking, well, I've got to write the best song I've ever written because this song Mm -hmm. has to be the one that catapults our career and makes us the biggest band ever. So I can imagine that was really probably a tumultuous, weird time. And uh, the other crazy thing about it is when you have a band like that, especially a band like Sleeping With Sirens, who was on this very noteworthy uphill trajectory, right? There was probably a lot of lip service to the band saying, essentially, you can do no wrong. This is going to be the biggest thing ever. 
And it's probably hard to assess how you feel about the art that you're creating at the same time. You know, you're thinking- Yeah, that you're, you couldn't be more spot on because I feel like we were just being told there was just new people in the picture with the producer. There was new management. There was new label folk, all that good stuff where everyone's telling you this is great, but you're not really thinking about, and even though we all knew like the whole major label slump or what, you know, whatever you want to call it, just flop. (laughs) We all were very aware that it happened to a lot of our favorite bands coming up and we'd even joke about it. But when you're, when you're involved in it, it's really hard to have the perspective that you do after the fact where, you know, I remember one, I can't remember even what his title was, but there was one guy who came in and listened to the song legends that's on that album. And he was like, that's a million dollar song. There's a guy from from Warner Brothers. He's like, that's the song that's going to take this band from, you know, what you're doing now to like new yeah. heights. Like, and and we believed it, you know, because it's yeah. a catchy song. It just wasn't a Sleeping With Siren song really to me. Yeah. I noticed that in pop music, you'll have a, a catchy phrase that informs the melody and then they'll build a song completely off that, which totally. I'm like you, when I would write a chord progression, then a melody on top of it. And then you express yourself through lyrics and words in that with the parameters of that, you know, not the opposite way. You've even heard of producers like Feldman. He used to do it one way and now he tends to do it more of that pop oriented way where he wants to have the message yeah. of the song or the chorus of the song, or even just the line, the phrase that's the hook or whatever, and then build the song from there. Yeah. That yeah. makes perfect sense. I appreciate you totally. being transparent about that because i'm always curious how that goes i was a big fan of the record before that one with feldman and i Mm -hmm. could hear a different direction with it was david bendith right he's the one the producer that recorded that one yeah that's right yeah cool and then 2017 you were no longer touring with sleeping with sirens then you started working for hoodie allen is that right yeah it happened pretty quick and and through that process david bendith was definitely someone i looked i looked up to and you know he had actually we did a showcase for Bendith in conditions, probably like 2008 because of the Paramore connection that we had. Yeah. And it it didn't quite work out with him early on. So, but he knew who I was, he was aware, you know, and so going into that session with him, I think he, even though it wasn't the album for me necessarily, I think I still took a lot of good things away from it as far as just being a musician, kind of falling back in love with the instrument, falling back in love with the process and all that. So he, you know, he still became like a a really good person to turn to. So after that, all that happened, he called me to kind of check in on things and, you know, said, well, you know, I, I think that's their loss because really made me feel good about, you know, the transition happening. And then very quickly, my buddies in state champs were working on a song with hoodie Allen and someone, I think Tyler, the guitarist said, Oh, it's going to be funny to see like Pat Brown play this stuff live. Who is another friend of mine who was playing guitar for hoodie Allen for the years before that. And in the studio with champs, he's like, well, it's funny uh, you say that because I actually need to find a new guitarist. Pat's going to move on to do other things. And I just talked with Tyler from champs about like everything that happened with sirens this is like a week later. Wow. And yeah. And he, he's like, yo, I think you should talk to my friend, Alex, you should have him audition. And so I like auditioned with some video recordings of some of his songs and got the gig. And a few months later I was doing that with hoodie and which is crazy to turn around that quickly, but definitely like stretched me musically stretched me to go from, even though it was a hired gun with sleeping with sirens, so I was still part of a band. Yeah. And then going into, all right, now I'm a hired gun for like a solo artist, which is definitely different. And it was Absolutely. Obviously, obviously different music, a whole different crowd, a lot of different like challenges, but I really enjoyed that because it kind of pushed me musically and, and even just personally to 
be more comfortable with like myself going forward rather than just like latching on to a band or trying to be part of something like there. It kind of made me realize like a little bit of my own self-worth, I think. Absolutely, man. And just what you're capable of. That's what's so cool about your story. And I thought that was a really cool pivot when it just showed your versatility. But I also think it takes a level of humility. You've got to be a person that gets along with lots of different people and is able to network and able to be resourceful. Like you said, it was a weak turnaround time. I mean, that speaks to your network and the people that you've been able to maintain and nurture these good productive relationships with, which I think is a universal thing that's going to help people out. Right. For sure. Yeah. That's awesome, man. How long did you play with hoodie? I was with him right up until COVID hit. So yeah. So 20, about three years, 2017 to 2020. And then that obviously changed some things and he went through some personal things as well. So we uh, just decided moving forward, I would go a different way. And now to fast forward to basically present day, I kind of thought I was done yet again. And, you know, living in Nashville now, I've been playing bass for a an artist named Jelly Roll. Cool. It was just crazy that he's like essentially seemingly come out of nowhere. Over the last couple of years, he's just blown up. My first show that I flew out to go fill in just for a show was in Dallas, Texas, and he, he was headlining. It was 8,000 people. I was like, dude, wow. what is going Like, what is going on? Like, I knew of him, but yeah. like, geez, like this is, this is wild. So thankfully it's, it's kind of worked out for me to come into that role. And I've been playing bass with, with him, you know, I finished out 2021 playing with him and he's got a lot on deck for 2022 and it's going to be exciting. Red, I think it just speaks to your versatility because you're switching instruments. You're going from guitar to bass, which is a pretty seamless transition, I think for most people, but not always, right? Do you play with a pick or are you playing? I do, I do both. Yeah, I do both depending on the song. So fun fact, I actually played bass before guitar as a kid. Um, Yeah, long story short, I always kind of like this story. I was probably like 10 or so. And I had asked my parents for a guitar for Christmas because I wanted to learn guitar. And my older brother, who's now a high school band director, just like a very, very (laughs) smart, musically gifted person. That's Um, awesome. Yeah. At the time, he's like, dude, you shouldn't get a guitar. You should get a bass. There's so many guitar players out there. There's not enough bass players. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Cool. And so that's what I did early on. I was in like middle school jazz band and stuff like going through high school playing bass. So essentially, as far as like music education, I came up playing bass guitar and I kind of just learned guitar on my own playing blink tabs and green day tabs, you know? Um, Yeah, dude. Yeah. And then that's how I, I made the transition. I started writing songs on guitar and probably about 15, 16, I put bass on the back burner and was just playing guitar. That's rad, man. So you grew up listening to Green Day as well. You probably loved Mike Durnt's bass lines. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He did. He was, he's one of the best ever, especially in that genre of music. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll hit you with a funny little story going back to the AP tour with conditions, Mike Durnt, his daughter, I guess, at least at the time was a big fan of Blackfell Brides. Oh, Okay. So the tour manager comes up to us and he's like, Hey, Mike from green day is going to be at the show. He's going to be in this one section. Like, don't bother him. So all of us were like, Oh shit. Like this is cool as hell. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, cause we're only like early twenties and like, that's a big deal. And hell that's yeah, all like what we all grew up on. And the, the, that one show we are side stage about to go on. And he just comes like, like walks into the room, like nothing's going on. It's literally just the five of us and Mike Dern. And he's <laughs> like, Hey, incredible. what's up? What's up guys? And we're like, Hey, 
you know, a little like starstruck. <laughs> sure. And, and he starts like going into like a little story. He's like talking about, yeah, I'm doing rehearsals with my band. And we're like, my band, it's fucking Green Day. Like, yeah, no big yeah. deal. So he was really nice to us. And then the funniest part was fast forward like two, three weeks. That was in uh, San Francisco. And fast forward two, three weeks, we're playing in New York. And I go down after I set to go down to the merch table to help facilitate meeting people and selling stuff. And he's just standing in the corner of this like basement venue that is where all the merch tables are set up. And I was like, Mike, and he's like, hey, what's up, man? Good to see you again. I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm rehearsing with my band in New York. So f- figured I'd come out to the show again. And I'm like looking around this room of high schoolers and whatever. And I was like, everyone's all worried about the bands on this bill and no one's bothering the guy from Green Day in the room. So that that's my Mike Durant story. He was Dude. super, super nice, super sweet to us. That's so badass. And I'm so yeah. glad you shared that. That's my favorite band of all time, Green Day. I'm one of those dudes who literally got on stage at the Pop Disaster Tour and, and got a guitar. And no it's, way. It's literally sitting That's right amazing. Over there. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I'm a little bit older than you. I was born in 84, but I discovered Dookie and it was all over from there. But yeah. I had that MTV did the Jaded in Chicago. The concert film that they did right after Dookie was released. It was a few months after, but I had that on VHS and he started doing the getting the the fan to come up on stage and play the song. Yeah. So I knew what he was doing because they literally did it at Pop Disaster and he's been doing it every show since for the last 20 years or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. So I got up there and out of body experience, I'm looking at Billy Joe. That's so rad. He, he gave me the guitar, but beyond that, I've never met those dudes, but it's always rad hearing stories of people meeting them and them being really, really cool. Couldn't uh, say any anything better. Like he was so cool to us. That's rad, man. That's really cool. I got to make sure I ask this question because I think this will be good if there's young musicians listening or even musicians that have been doing it for a while. But what would you say to somebody who maybe has the opportunity to be a touring member of an established band, even if they are a hired gun, could potentially go to being something else or more beyond that. But what would you say to somebody like that? They had an opportunity like that. A few things like top of mind for me is number one, be prepared. Like I feel like I've, whenever I've had the opportunity I've done my homework. I've practiced my ass off to make sure that something like a curveball isn't thrown to me that I always make sure that I'm prepared. So just know your stuff. You know, if you're going to go into an audition or even like get hired for a tour, just make sure that you're ready. Yeah. So I think that's the first and foremost, most important thing on top of that, just, you know, a little bit of know your worth. Obviously, if, if you're getting into that sort of conversation, you have something going for you. And I've seen a lot of friends kind of sell themselves short a little bit, whether it be monetarily or just like as a part of their voice and things, I would say just, you know, go with your gut and, and know that you're good enough to be doing that and speak up for yourself and make sure that things go well. And on top of that, there's a fine line in, in being someone that's very easy to get along with on the road or, you know, just don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, like, when you're coming into a different thing like that, like, yeah, of course you want your voice to be heard and you want to make sure that you're comfortable, but on the flip side, you know, you don't want to be the guy that's complaining about things or causing issues or, or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, sure. I, I think that's a very easy thing to go by is just to work hard, know your stuff and be a good person and things are going to go well, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, be open to those possibilities. I think yeah. you're right. That's really good advice because I think it probably is a fine line treading of you want to stand up for yourself. You want to make sure you're not being taken advantage of in any capacity or just having a voice within the unit that is the band, but at mm-hmm. the same time paying your dues and, and being prepared and making sure you're falling to the level of the training as in like you've practiced, you've learned those songs and you've come to the table with something that's very valuable. Yeah. I like yeah, that. That's absolutely. really smart. Cool. Awesome. And you just recently got married. Is that I right? did. Yeah. yeah. Um, Congratulations, wife, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. My wife and I got married in September of 2020. We had our hopes and dreams kind of a little bit shattered, but with a wedding that we were planning, but didn't end up getting to do that one because of COVID in 2020. Um, yeah. But we did our own little thing. We had our parents and we went to the courthouse. We did a nice little ceremony with just a couple friends, which was great. And then what we decided to do is we waited a year. So on our one year anniversary, we did like our wedding. So That's she right. got, okay. yeah. So she got to have her thing where she got to do, you know, wear a dress, got to have our, you know, our groomsmen and bridesmaids and have like a proper party. So, yeah. So we did essentially two weddings and now I'm done with weddings. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Cool. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Now you can Thank just you. enjoy being married, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She, you know, I'm doing this interview with you and I'm very thankful that she's downstairs making dinner and we're great. <laughs> awesome, oh, man. That sounds yeah. great. Well, dude, I want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate you doing this. In doing a podcast, it's usually a good idea to come up with a short list of people that you want to talk to. And I always had you in mind because I just really liked your career arc. I just think it's fascinating and interesting. And I mean, it was fairly illuminating hearing you talk about it today. And so thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. I mean, especially since we've never met, but I guess we have via Zoom now. So yeah, Nashville's rad. My partner, her name's Pamela. Her best friend lives in Nashville. So we visit there pretty frequently. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, thank you so much for having me. It's it's uh, of course it's an honor, and you know I'm I'm flattered to have made your your list at some point. And um, yeah, yeah whenever you come back to Nashville, you got my number or or you send me a DM, and I would be more than happy to go uh, grab a drink or something. Yeah, that sounds great, man. For sure. All cool. right, man. Well, thanks again we'll for do. having me. Yeah, of course, man. And take care. And I definitely plan on making it back to Nashville at some point. So hell yeah, sounds good, man. Yeah. All right, have buddy. a good night. Well, thanks again, and. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. Take care, buddy. Later. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 